0: Welcome to the History Today podcast. This article is from the October issue of the magazine, which is on sale now. You can buy a copy of this issue from our website, from newsstands across the UK, or download our app, available on the App Store and Google Play.
2: The Terrible Lioness The ambitious Sikh queen, Jind Kaur, faced division among her subjects and the might of the British Empire by Priya Atwal, read by Greg Johnson. John Newmarch, a British solicitor, published a letter in the week before Christmas 1848 in the widely read Calcutta newspaper The Englishman. It contained a searing indictment of East India Company policy. He was addressing none other than the Company's Governor-General, the Earl of Dalhousie it was a bold move and an open attempt to shame the British Indian authorities in full public view. Then again, Newmarch's client and the subject of his letter was no ordinary person. Her name was Maharani Jind Kor and she was a formidable Sikh queen. At the time of the letter's publication, however, Jind Kor was locked up in a fort in Benares, far away from her family and kingdom in the Punjab. To highlight his client's plight, Newmarch detailed how appallingly the Maharani had been treated by the British as a state prisoner, despite never having been brought to trial or even made aware of the charges that the company held against her. Her lawyer pointedly declared that, by taking such heavy-handed and unjustified action against Jind Kaur, the Governor-General had acted in a manner that was not only most impolitic but also most treacherous. Newmarch reminded Dalhousie that his royal prisoner was the widow of the late, great Maharaja Ranjit Singh, founder of the Sikh Empire in the Punjab, whose dynasty had been loyal allies of the East India Company for forty years, with the exception, that is, of the Anglo-Sikh War of 1845-46, a devastating conflict between the Sikh Empire's Khalsa army and the company, which had ended in the defeat of the Sikhs. This war had broken out under Jind Kaur's watch, when she was regent to her young son, Maharaja Dalip Singh. Newmarch, however, defended the Maharani from accusations that had circulated since November 1845 that she was culpable for the conflict. He asserted instead that it was well known that Sikh troops had threatened to kill her and her eight-year-old son if she stopped them from invading British Indian territory. Newmarch thus painted Jind Kor as a woman and a leader, who had been treacherously attacked from all angles, first by her own mutinous soldiers and then, after the war, by the British officers and the Punjabi chiefs who were meant to act in support of her reinstated government at Lahore, but who instead conspired in December 1846 to defame and oust her from her son's household and capital. Despite the scandals swirling around her, the Maharani was, by all measures, the rightful person to be leading her son's government. In 1848, as an anti British rebellion broke out in northwestern Punjab, Dalhousie had stepped up action against her and ordered that Jin Kaur be removed from her kingdom entirely. She was transported southeast under armed guard to be held captive in Benares. This action was taken despite the fact, as both Dalhousie and Newmarch knew, that British political agents had no hard evidence of the Maharani's complicity in the mounting revolt being led by Punjabi noblemen and the Sikh army's disbanded former soldiers against the company's control over Duleep Singh's government. In an extraordinary attack on the most powerful officials in British India, Newmarch's letter took aim at the Governor-General's Council and poured scorn over public claims that their treatment of the Maharani was grounded in political necessity and liberality. He taunted Dalhousie directly, declaring that he was afraid of the escape of this terrible lioness. But who was Jind Kaur, and how did she become such a formidable woman? Rebellious and subversive as a woman and queen, Jind Kaur was born into a much humbler station in life in 1817. Her father, Mana Singh Orlok, is believed to have been one of Maharaja Ranjit Singh's kennel keepers at Lahore. As Punjabi legend would have it, his daughter's beauty would be the reason for the Orlok family's rise to power and eminence. When Jind Kaur reached early adolescence, her father reputedly began urging his master to take his daughter as a bride, arguing that her youthful beauty would keep him young in spirit too. The exact date of the eventual marriage between Ranjit Singh and Jind Kaur is unknown, but it is likely to have taken place sometime in the 1830s, when the Maharaja was in his 50s. At the time of her marriage, she would have been at the bottom end of the queenly pecking order, due to her relatively low birth and her youth. Ranjit Singh, while building up his new kingdom on the bedrock of the former Mughal Empire in Punjab, had already married around 30 women. It was only after Jind Kaur bore the Maharaja a son, Duleep Singh, in September 1838, that her standing grew within the inner rankings of the family's royal women. The royal line of succession for the Lahore throne was settled long before Duleep's arrival. The baby prince had six adult half-brothers who were well-established in their princely careers. Ranjit Singh himself was a self-made monarch who assumed a royal title in 1801. His multiple marriages, with women from almost all classes, communities, and regions of his emerging kingdom, provided alliances among the local families and political society of the Punjab, offering a supportive foundation for the ambitious Maharaja's empire building. By the 1830s, such marital connections became a means for ordinary families, like that of Manas Singh, to achieve considerable social mobility, if they successfully landed the Maharaja or one of his sons as a groom. For their daughters. Ranjit Singh's wives were not, however, shepherded into a courtly zanana or harem, only to be occasionally seen but never really heard of again. Though we have an unequal understanding of the lives and fates of the Sikh Empire's leading women, it is clear that they each enjoyed considerable economic and social power, commanding sizeable incomes with which they built their own mansions in and beyond the capital Lahore, as well as patronising artists, scholars and religious institutions. These queens managed their own estates, supervised their sons' political education and represented their dynasty in diplomatic relations within Punjabi society, even entertaining the wives of leading company officials. Their activities in turn lent legitimacy and authority to their husbands' burgeoning empire. Arguably, the greatest shock to the empire's stability came in November 1840, following the strange and untimely deaths just five days apart of Ranjit Singh's immediate heir, Karak Singh, and his adult son, Noor Nihal Singh. Ranjit Singh's health was already failing by the time of his youngest son's birth, and the Maharaja died in June 1839, before Dalip reached his first birthday. Nobody expected Karak or Narnali Hal Singh to die so soon, and their deaths ruptured the settled order of succession. A civil war ensued between contenders for the Lahore throne, Karak Singh's widow, Maharani Chand Kaur, and his brother, Prince Sheer Singh. The brutal struggle and the eventual murders of the queen and prince left a toxic legacy for the royal rulers who followed. In September 1843, the six-year-old Duleep Singh was chosen to be king, over his remaining four adult half-brothers. It was clearly thought by the new political players in charge of the capital that he and his relatively inexperienced mother would be easy to manipulate. These were the vassal Sikh chiefs of Ranjit Singh's court, together with the parvenu class of his former ministers and the Khalsa army. These groups had never been more powerful, Though they were caught in a tight bind, jockeying for power among one another. Prior to this dramatic turn of events, the young mother and son had been living in comparative peace and safety in Jammu, in the far north of the subcontinent. It would probably have been a frightful shock for Jind Kaur and Dilip Singh to be abruptly launched into the maelstrom of Lahore's deadly politics. Yet, to dismiss them as helpless and relatively insignificant political figures, as far too many histories have done in the past, would be a mistake. Their position was not unique within their own family's history. Ranjit Singh himself had only inherited his ancestral warband in 1790 as a ten-year-old and had been amply supported in his early training and kingdom-building by his mother and his mother-in-law. Given the active role played by his queens during his lifetime too, there was no shortage of precedents for the role that Jind Kor would come to occupy as regent during her son's reign. She also modelled herself on other powerful Indian women, particularly Begum Samru, who inherited the principality of Sardana from her European mercenary husband, which she ruled until her death in 1836. Nevertheless, it was evident that the Sikh Queen shouldered a heavy responsibility at a time of considerable political danger. The Khalsa army, which had been bribed to fight by opposite sides during the succession struggle, was now ranged against her government, demanding higher pay and a direct say in political affairs. Meanwhile, across the Anglo-Punjabi border of the river Sutlej, the East India Company's political officers were watching hawkishly the turbulent events in Lahore, which promised opportunity. The Maharani and her soldiers grew perturbed by how, as courtly infighting plagued the capital and its environs, the British tightened their colonising grip on the territories surrounding the Sikh Empire, annexing neighbouring states in Sindh and ramping up their military presence closer to the banks of the Sutlej. In her early 20s, Jind Kaur had to learn rapidly how to run a government and defend her son's position. British intelligence sources kept a close eye on her, highlighting her leadership potential and charisma early on. From such records, we learned that her greatest strength was her bold and forceful speaking ability. Combined with her great beauty and symbolic status, as Ranjit Singh's widow and the young Maharaja's mother, the Maharani evoked awe and loyalty among the soldiers of the Khalsa army.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at
1: mintmobile.com.
2: Although her royal female contemporaries typically observed purdah wearing a veil or sitting behind a curtain in male company, Jin Kor would dispense with such protocol when she felt the situation demanded it reportedly addressing up to 2,000 armed men openly on many occasions to keep the soldiers on side after they ousted their former generals and formed their own internal council. This was not to be a smooth relationship. Although the Maharani was popular with the troops, her ministers were not. Foremost among them was her brother, Jawahir Singh, who was her de facto prime minister, a role in which he proved unreliable. Jawahir Singh's answer to the problems facing his sister was to threaten an attack on British territory and then to order the assassination of two of Ranjit Singh's remaining sons, rivals to Dalip's position as Maharaja. When news of this murder reached the Khalsa troops, Jawahir Singh was summoned to their camp and brutally hacked to death in front of the terror-stricken Maharani and Maharaja. This devastating event has long been at the heart of claims that Jind Kaur deliberately ordered the 1845 46 war with the company in the vengeful hope that the British would beat and destroy the Khalsa army and offer a path to power. But Newmarch's letter was closer to the truth. As company intelligence privately recorded, the grieving Maharani knew that war with the British would be fraught with risk but was powerless to prevent it. During the earlier succession struggle, the legitimacy of female power had been questioned and challenged by Shir Singh in his campaign against Chand Kaur in order to strengthen his own claims, as he was known to be an adopted rather than natural son of the late Ranjit Singh. Such conservative, misogynistic views lingered in certain sections of the Khalsa army and fueled a growing impatience with Jind Kaur's authority. This tense situation was inflamed further by Raja Gulab Singh, a disaffected, ambitious general and courtier. Gulab Singh covertly bribed and pitted the soldiers against the Maharani, instigating them to clamour for war against the British, while also secretly promising his support to the current Governor-General, Henry Hardinge. Jin Kaur was pushed into a war that she did not want, but for which she would take the blame. At the war's end in March 1846, the Maharani's battered government was saddled by the company with onerous treaty demands, a heavy indemnity and instructions to radically reduce the size of the Khalsa army. She was left with just one-third of her kingdom to work with. There was no way that she could achieve these treaty demands within the deadlines imposed by the company. Even more crucially, Hardinge and his deeply misogynist man on the spot, Henry Lawrence, did not want the Maharani to remain in charge. By December 1846, they had won over enough prominent Punjabi chiefs to write her out of power, installing Lawrence as resident and head of Dulip's government. The Maharani, however, refused to be sidelined. She believed it was her right to train her son and manage his government, and so continued to be involved in political matters by receiving ministers in her private apartments. Suspicious and competitive, Lawrence portrayed this as treasonous meddling and sexual debauchery and worked to have her ousted from Lahore. Within a year, she was exiled to the countryside. This act, though supported by a group of government ministers, sent shockwaves through the former soldiers and Punjabi chiefs alike. It seemed a worrying step closer to British dominance. Such fears sparked rebellion in April 1848, which began in the fortress town of Multan, when two British officers were killed by Sikh troops. As a fresh conflict erupted throughout the Punjab, Jin Kaur was swiftly removed from the region and sent to Benares. Effectively under siege in Lahore, Dalip Singh and his ministers abided by the 1846 treaties and were not implicated in the rebellion in any way. The new Governor-General Dalhousie, however, was not interested in maintaining the old policy of keeping the little Maharaja and his kingdom in place as a buffer for British India. An infamous advocate of overthrowing Indian royal dynasties in favour of implementing aggressively reformist British rule, Dalhousie had no qualms about ousting both Duleep and Jin Corps from power, annexing their state in March 1849. It was at Benares that an increasingly embattled Jind Corps hired John Newmarch as her lawyer. He was appointed to clear her name and to fight for her freedom and power to be restored. Newmarch sprang into action with gusto, taking the fight directly to Dalhousie with his letter in The Englishman. He also tried to get a hearing for Jind Kaur's case at the Supreme Court in Calcutta, then capital of British India. This attempt failed. Undaunted, his next gambit aimed to be even more public and ambitious. Newmarch was keen to take the Maharani's claims to the Westminster Parliament, the seat of British imperial power. It is not known whether this was his idea alone, or whether Jindcourt herself was aware and supportive of it. Newmarch laid out his plans in a letter to the Maharani, together with cuttings of his newspaper articles, but it seems these never reached his client. Dalhousie's secretary, realising that such correspondence could prove deeply damaging to the company, refused permission for them to be passed to her, and effectively ended the lawyer's ability to do any further work for the imprisoned Queen. Although this endeavour failed, it still reveals how dangerous Jind Kaur was considered by the British. From starting out as an inexperienced young woman in a precarious political position, she swiftly grew accustomed to using her voice as a weapon against the threats of soldiers and conniving British officials. She even had the quick-witted acumen to recognise the value of employing an English lawyer to conduct a press and political campaign on her behalf. Yet more intriguingly, although Newmarch defended her innocence in his public letter, it was the Maharani herself who had been behind the recent anti-company rebellion in the Punjab. After her initial exile from Lahore in August 1847, Jin Kaur had been held under house arrest in Sheikapura Fort. From there, she had secretly dispatched revolutionary plans to key Punjabi chiefs who remained her loyal supporters. These were discovered later hidden inside amulets carried by her priests and maidservants. These were the plans that resulted in her soldiers' initial mutiny at Multan. Jind Kaur's ambitious schemes failed to throw the company out of the Punjab. The rebellion was eventually crushed, resulting in the annexation of the Sikh state, with ten-year-old Dilip exiled from the Punjab within a year. The Maharani had an indefatigable spirit nonetheless. Disguised as her seamstress, she slipped out of her jail and fled to the Nepalese sanctuary of Kathmandu to seek political asylum. Having maintained purdah before all British officials, Jind Kaur was unrecognised as she left the fortress where she was imprisoned. The feat demonstrated the kind of courage that colonial adventurers were usually celebrated for and it infuriated Dalhousie. When the Nepalese refused to hand her over, little could be done by the British other than order the resident at Kathmandu to monitor her movements. From the Nepal residency records, it emerges that Jind Kaur made repeated attempts to contact her son, whose absence affected her greatly. She followed Punjabi affairs closely and evidently tried to stir up trouble in her old kingdom, but without success. A pivotal moment came in 1857-58, when the Great Rebellion threatened to sweep the British out of India entirely. Unfortunately, the pertinent records for that crucial period Are missing, so we cannot know how Jindkor responded or whether she interacted with another newly arrived rebel queen in Kathmandu, Begum Hazrat Mahal, who was fighting to overturn Dalhousie's annexation of her family's kingdom of Awad. During her 13-year stay in Nepal, Jindkor's spirit remained unbroken, but her health deteriorated. When she was finally reunited with her son in 1861, she was blind mother and son were permitted, begrudgingly, to live together in England, but the Maharani died two years later. Even in death, however, the terrible lioness was still perceived as a threat. Wary of unrest among the Sikhs after the 1857 mutiny, the British government refused Dilip Singh permission to scatter his mother's ashes in Punjab. A proud, determined woman, Maharani Jind Kaur was part of a generation of Indian queens who may be little known today, but who had a powerful and lasting influence on the society and politics of their turbulent era.